Chapter 9 of the Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 9 The Discovery. Hazel walked up to the door of the cabin in a dream of anticipation realized. The periwinkles nodded their bright eyes along the border of the path, and the chickens stood there on one kid foot of yellow just as Christy had described. She could almost have found the way here alone from the letters. She drank in the air and felt it give new life to her, and she thought of the pleasant hours she would spend with Christy during the weeks that were to follow, and of her secret plan to take Christy back home with her for the winter. They knocked at the door which was open, and stepping in stood surrounded by the familiar things. All three felt the delight of giving these few simple gifts, which were so little to them when they were given. Then a merry whistle sounded from the backyard, and heavy steps on the board path at the back door, and Christy walked in from the barn with a frying pan in one hand and a dishpan in the other. He had gone out to scrape some scraps from his table to the chickens in the yard. The blood rushed to his cheeks at the sight of his three elegant visitors. He put the cooking utensils down on the stove with a thud and pulled off his old straw hat, revealing his garnet-tinted hair in all its glory against the sunshine of a Florida sky in the doorway behind him. Is Christy Bailey at home? questioned Victoria Landis, who seemed the natural spokesperson for the three. I am Christy Bailey, said the young man seriously, looking from one to another. Won't you sit down? There was a moment's pause before the tension broke, and then a pained sweet voice, the voice of Christie's dreams, spoke. But Christie Bailey is a young woman. Christie looked at Hazel and knew his hour had come. No, I am Christie Bailey, he said once more, his big honest eyes pleading for forgiveness. Do you really mean it? said Victoria, with amusement growing in her eyes, as she noted his every fine point noted the broad shoulders and the way he had of carrying his head up, noted the flash of his eyes and the toss of rich waves from his forehead. And you're not a girl, after all, questioned Ruth Summers in a frightened tone, looking with troubled eyes from Christy to Hazel, who had turned quite white. But Christy was looking straight at Hazel, his soul come to judgment before her, his mouth closed, unable to plead his own cause. Evidently not remarked Victoria dryly. What extremely self-evident facts you find to remark upon, Ruth. But the others didn't hear them. They were facing one another, these two who held communion of soul for so many months, and who, now that they were face to face, were suddenly cut asunder by an insurmountable wall of a composition known as truth. Hazel's dark eyes burned wide and deep from her white face. The enthusiasm that could make her love an unseen, unlovely woman could also glow with scorn for one she despised. The firm little mouth he had admired was set and stern. Her lips were as pallid as her cheeks, while the light of truth fairly scintillated from her countenance. Then you have been deceiving me all this time. Her voice was high and clear, tempered by her late illness and sharp with pain. Her whole alert, graceful body expressed the utmost scorn. She could have posed as a model of the figure of retribution. And in that awful minute, Christy met her eye for eye and saw the judgment of guilty pronounced upon him. 
could only acknowledge it as just, and saw before him the blankness of the punishment that was to be his. Yet he had time to think with a thrill of delight that Hazel was all and more that he dreamed of her as being. He had time to be glad she was as she was. He would not have her changed one whit, retribution and all. It was over a minute, with the sentence issued, the girl turned and marched with stately step out of the door down the white path to the road. But the little ripples of air she swept by in passing rolled back upon the culprit a knowledge of her disappointment, chagrin, and humiliation. Christie bowed his head in acceptance of his sentence, and looked at his other two visitors, his eyes beseeching them to go and leave him to endure what had come upon him. Ruth was clinging to Victoria's arm, frightened. She had seen the delicate white of Hazel's cheek as she went out the door, but Victoria's eyes were dancing with fun. Why didn't you say something? she demanded of Christie. Go out and stop her before she gets away. See, she's out there by the hedge. You can make it all right with her. Pity was in her voice. She liked the honest eyes and fine bearing of the young man. Besides, she loved fun and didn't like to see this most enticing situation spoiled at the climax. A light of hope sprang into Christie's eyes as he turned to follow her suggestion. It didn't take him long to overtake Hazel's slow step on the soft sandy ground. I must tell you how sorry I am, he began before he quite caught up to her. But she turned and faced him with her hand lifted in protest. If you're sorry, then please don't say another word. I will forgive you, of course, because I'm a Christian, but don't speak to me again. I hate deceit. Then she turned and sped down the road like a flash in spite of her weakness. Christie stood in the road where she left him, his head bared to the winter's sunshine, looking as if he'd been struck in the face by a loved hand, his whole strong body trembling. Victoria, meanwhile, was taking in the situation. She noticed Hazel's photograph, framed in a delicate tracery of Florida Moss. Then she frowned. Hazel would never permit that to stay here now, and her instinct told her it would be missed by its present owner and that he had the kind of honor that would not keep it if it were demanded. This mustn't be in sight when Hazel comes back. She whispered softly, disengaging herself from Ruth's clinging hand and going vigorously to work. She took down the photograph, slipped off the moss, and looking around for a place of concealment, hid it in the breast pocket of an old coat lying on a chair nearby. Then, going to the door, she watched for developments but as she perceived that Hazel had fled and Christie was dazed, she decided she was needed elsewhere, and calling Ruth hurried down the road. If you miss anything, look in your coat pocket for it, she said as she passed Christie in the road, but Christie was too much overcome to take in what she meant. He went back to his cabin. The light of the world seemed crushed out for him. Even the organ and the couch and the various pleasing touches that entered his home through these northern friends a year ago seemed to withdraw themselves from him. It was as if they had discovered the mistake in his identity and were frowning their disapproval and letting him know he was holding property under false pretenses. Only the loving eyes of the pictured Christ looked tenderly at him, and with a leap of heart, Christie realized that Hazel gave him one thing she could never take away. With something almost like a sob, he threw himself on his knees before the picture and cried out in anguish, My father! Christie didn't eat supper that night. 
he forgot that there was any need for anything but comfort and forgiveness in the world. He knelt there praying sometimes, but most of the time just letting his heart lie bleeding and open before his father's eyes. The night fell, and still he knelt. Eventually he felt a kind of comfort in remembering the little black girl's words. You all's father's not dead. He was not cut off from his father. Something like peace settled upon him, a resignation and a strength to bear. To think the situation over clearly and see whether he could do anything was beyond him. His rebuke had come. He could not justify himself. He had done wrong, though without intention. Besides, it was too late to do anything now. He had been turned out of Eden. The angel with the flaming sword had bidden him think no more to enter. He must go forth and labor. But God was not dead. The days after that passed slowly and dully. Christie hardly took account of time. He was like one laden with a heavy burden and made to pull it on a long road. He had started and was plotting his best every day, knowing an end would come sometime, but it would be hard and long. Gradually he came out of the days Hazel's words had put upon him. Gradually he felt himself forgiven by God for his deceit, but he wouldn't discuss even with his own heart the possibility of forgiveness from Hazel. She was right, of course. He knew from the first that her friendship did not belong to him. He would keep the memory of it safe, and in time, when he could bear to think it over, it would be a precious treasure. At least he could prove himself worthy of the year of her friendship he had enjoyed. But thinking his sad thoughts, and going about the hardest work he could find, he avoided the public road as much as possible, taking the little by-paths when he went out from his own grove. Thus one morning Christie emerged from a tangle of hummock land where the live oaks arched high above him. The wild grape and jasmine snarled themselves from magnolia to bay tree in exquisite patterns, and rare orchids defied the world of fashion to find their hidden lofty homes. Here he heard voices near and the soft footfalls of well-shod horses on the rich rooty earth of the bridle path. He stepped to one side to let the riders pass, for the way was narrow just where a ray of sunlight came through a clearing he stood, and the light fell around him, on his bared head, for he held his hat in his hand, making his head look like one from a painting of an old master, all the copper tints shining above the clear depths of his eyes. He knew who was coming. It was for this he had removed his hat. His forehead shone white in the shadowed road, where the hat had kept off the sunburn, and about his face had come a sadness and a dignity that glorified his plainness. Hazel rode the forward horse. She looked weary, and the flush in her cheeks was not altogether one of health. She was controlling herself wonderfully, but her strength was not what they had hoped it would be when they brought her to the south. The long walk she took under pressure of excitement almost wore her out. She'd been unable to go out since, until this afternoon when, with the sudden willfulness of the convalescent, she insisted on a horseback ride. She'd gone much farther than her two faithful friends thought wise, and then suddenly turned toward home, too weary to ride rapidly. And now she came, at this turn, upon Christie, standing, sun-glorified, his head inclined in deference, his eyes pleading, his whole bearing one of reverence. She looked at him, started, and knew him. That was plain. Then, her face a deadly white, her eyes straight ahead, 
she rode by majestically with a steady unknowing gaze that cut him like a knife just glinting by from her in passing he bowed his head acknowledging her right to do thus with him but all the blood in his body surged into his face and then receding left him as white as the girl who just passed by him victoria and ruth behind saw and grieved they bowed graciously to him as if to try to make up for hazel's act but he scarcely seemed to see them for he was gazing down the narrow shadowed way after the straight little figure sitting her horse so resolutely and riding now so fast i didn't know you could be so cruel hazel said victoria riding forward beside her that fellow was just magnificent and you have stabbed him to the heart but hazel had stopped her horse dropped her bridle and was slipping white and limp from her saddle to the ground she had not heard it was sunday morning before they had time to think or talk more about it hazel had made them very anxious but sunday morning she felt a little better and they were able to slip into her darkened room one at a time and say a few words to her something must be done said victoria decidedly scowling out the window at the ripples of the blue lake below the hotel lawn i can't understand how this thing has taken such a great hold on her but i feel sure it's that and nothing else that's making her so ill don't you think so ruth it's the disappointment said ruth with troubled eyes she told me this morning that it almost shook her faith in prayer and god to think she prayed so for the conversion of that girl's soul and then found out it was a creature after all without a soul laughed victoria she never could refrain from saying something funny whenever she happened to think of it but ruth went on it wasn't his being a man at all instead of a girl she wouldn't have minded who he or she was if it hadn't been for the deceit she says he went through the whole thing with her professed to be converted and a very earnest christian and to pray for other people and talked about christ in a wonderful way and now to think he did it all for a joke it just crushes her she thinks he deceived her of course in those things too she says a man who would deceive in one thing would do so in another she doesn't believe now even in his sunday school and then you know she's so enthusiastic that she must have said a lot of loving things to him she's just horrified to think she's been carrying on a first-class low-down flirtation with an unknown stranger I think the sooner she gets away from this part of the country the better she ought to forget all about it but she wouldn't forget you know hazel and besides the doctor says it might be death to her to go back into the cold now with her present health no ruth something else has to be done what can be done victoria you always talk as if you could do anything if you only said about it i'm not sure but i could said victoria laughing wait and see this thing has to be reduced to plain ordinary terms and have all the heroics and tragedy taken out of it i may need your help so be ready after that victoria went to her room from which she emerged about an hour later and made her way by back halls and bypaths and finally unseen down the road she wasn't quite sure of the way but by retracing her steps occasionally she arrived in front of christie's cabin just as aunt tildy was setting her spectacles for the opening hymn she looked around for a few minutes until the singing was well along and then slipped noiselessly through the sand to the side of the house after a few experiments she discovered a crevice through which she could get a limited view of the sunday school a smile of satisfaction hovered about her lips 
At least the Sunday school was a fact. So much she learned from her trip. Then she settled herself to listen. Christy was praying. It was the first time Christy's voice had been heard by anyone but his master in prayer. It happened simply enough. Uncle Moses had been sent away to the village for a doctor for a sick child, and there was no one else to pray. To Christy it wasn't such a trial as it would have been a year ago. He had talked with his heavenly father many times since that first cry in the night. But he was not an orator. His words were simple. Jesus Christ, we make so many mistakes, and we sin so often. Forgive us. We're not worth saving. But we thank you that you love us, even though all the world turn against us, and though we hate our own selves. Victoria found her eyes filling with tears. If Hazel could only hear that prayer. End of chapter 9